Hello and welcome to The Outsider Narrative. This is the fourth episode of the segment series on Siona Benjamin and her transcultural art. I am in conversation this week with Professor Samantha Baskind and artist Siona Benjamin. Samantha Baskind is Professor of Art History at Cleveland State University. She's the author and editor of six books on Jewish American art and culture, which address subjects ranging from fine art to film to comics and graphic novels. She served as editor for U.S. Art for the 22-volume revised edition of Encyclopedia Judaica and is currently series editor of Dimyonot, Jews and Cultural Imagination, published by Penn State University Press. Samantha, how did you and Siona connect? I was asked to write a chapter about Esther in American art for a larger project, an edited volume about Esther in America. And so I was intrigued by her Megillah that she made in 2010 for a private patron. It is beautiful in style. She painted in gouache and it's enormous in size. So I'm intrigued by this 15 foot long, 11 and a half inch wide illuminated Megillah from the 21st century. So I called her, um, I got information about it. I was able to write about it more eloquently, um, getting a sense of her intentions and more about her style, which is incredibly unique. And then I realized there was a possibility for more projects and work between us. And so we struck up a friendship and now have been working on more projects, which has been a pleasure. And as an art historian, what are the key things that strike to you about Siona's work? It's a combination of things. Um, her style, of course, which is extremely delicate and vibrant. And I'm interested in why she paints her women blue, right? I, I read about it. You can read about this, certainly from other scholars, but I wanted to hear it from the so-called horse's mouth. I wanted to understand beyond sort of the surface of what I had read. And so, again, just this delicate laying of paint. Um, I write about comics. I was interested in comics as well. And so, you know, finding all of these qualities in her art made me want to hear more about the Megillah, made me want to hear more about her other projects, which are different. You know, she works in multimedia. And so I felt like there was just a lot of potential there for me. And of course, her identity, right, beyond style, this unique identity as a woman of color and a Jew of color. Siona also builds from a tradition from the 1930s. During the 1930s, there was a group of artists that were known as social realists. And the majority of social realists were Jewish Americans. So these were Jews, some were immigrants, some had come you know, as young men to this country or even boys. And a preponderance of artists during this moment are making art to comment on society from the Great Depression, homelessness, and employment li unemployment lines. They painted those moments. And then when there was more, you know, even greater crises, we have artists like Harry Sternberg, who made an incredible print of a lynching. Um, Raphael Sawyer painted unemployment lines and the homeless. William Gropper, and I'm, I'm, I'm right, I'm in this early part of the 20th century here. William Gropper even extends back further. He, in the 20s, painted for left, or I'm um, sorry, made prints 
and drawings for left-wing publications. And that was in protest of what's going on in the world, not just in our country. And that, that kind of art has been placed under the rubric of tikkun olam. And not that tikkun olam was a term that was part of American society, because while the ideas around tikkun olam existed from the Hebrew Bible, that actual term didn't come to be until the 70s, 1970s. Nonetheless, these are really interesting artists. Again, Jewish Americans who are looking very closely at what's going on in society and making art about it. And that's what Siona does too. Talked in the previous episode about the pluralism of style that you bring to your art. But for you, was it uh, comfortable, you know, to mix these styles? Was this a conscious, obviously these were conscious choice that you made. How comfortable was it? Well, in the, in the beginning, it was most uncomfortable. It was a suitcase of heavy baggage that I carried not knowing what to do with it. Um, I, um, for many years, I struggled with, um, you know, thinking that maybe parts of my identity were difficult to explain. People didn't get it. Uh, people were intrigued, but it was strange for them. And I still sometimes feel that way, that people, um, it's like an artistic and it's like a, being an artistic anomaly, you know, but also being an anomaly as a human being, you know, <laughs> um, <clears throat> uh, sometimes mixed with surprise, sometimes mixed with uh, interest, sometimes mixed with, oh, yeah, you know, uh, I've heard of, you know, Jews in India and, you know, what are they all about? And it's, it's, it's pleasant to, to tell them about it. But when somebody approaches me with kind of a feeling of negativity that, you know, or racism or disbelief or questions the so-called purity of people in certain parts of the world, then it becomes uncomfortable in a way that I feel like I have to prove myself or I did feel I have to prove myself before. But then I realized, what, what the heck? I don't need to prove myself to anybody. I know who I am because I was raised very Jewish and I was raised very proudly Jewish and Indian. And now I'm proudly American too, actually, because America has given me so much of opportunity and, and, um, and work and you know exposure, everything. So <clears throat> all of these identities, uh, thinking about what to do with them. And then I realized, why can't it just be a celebration instead of a baggage? And in exploring that celebration, I found so many components of it. Like, you know, like Samantha said, the comics, the storytelling, the fact that I'm not a you know, male um, abstract painter from the 1950s, that I don't do large abstract paintings like I was told by my professors to do it so I would become more well-known that way. I was, I like feminine, delicate paintings that told stories, very different from small maybe sometimes, uh, you know, layered. Um, <clears throat> so realizing all that like was um, very helpful for me to be able to start thinking about what direction I want to go in my work uh, what do I want to say? Who am I? What is my place in the world, in society, as an artist? You know, uh, what is my role? So um, realizing that was kind of 
good and is definitely a celebration. So right now, I don't think it's a baggage anymore. It is definitely um, multifaceted celebration of things that I want to talk about. And it's limitless. There's so much to say that I feel that one lifetime is not enough. So, you know, for now, that feels good. I don't know how I'll feel tomorrow, but <laughs> for now, it seems like there's enough to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, when you embrace your otherness, it is called empowerment and it is called authentic uh, self. I think you have self-actualized that and given all your uh, audience and viewers much pleasure as a result of that. So, Samantha, in the context of, you know, talking about these voices of freedom, in the context of American Jewish art, have you noticed uh, such sensibilities, such finding voices, gaining um, gaining um gaining a style perhaps well there's no you know one style of jewish american art it would be impossible like in the renaissance right there is a similar style but jewish art's not the product of a national school and even jewish american art isn't because we have artists from such diverse backgrounds and it's really somewhat of a new phenomena you know america's a new country you know a young country and until the late 19th century, there were not Jewish American artists. <clears throat> they were slow to come to be, but you know, there's been a flourishing of specifically Jewish American art, not Jewish Americans making art. So this more current flourishing is what Siona is part of. And it's in part because you know, difference is accepted, right? Multicultural aspects of our world are embraced where they weren't for so long, right? The melting pot was everyone supposed to melt into, you know, one new American, but really it was, you need to melt into American. The melting pot was a falsity. And Siona being, as she put it, an artistic anomaly makes her so interesting. And many Jewish American artists are anomalies. There aren't a lot of them. There's certainly more openness to them, but still problems, as we know, Siona, when it comes to this issue. But some of these Jewish American artists have come together to support each other in the Jewish Art Salon, which is an important group that's been, you know, supporting each other and helping exhibit and publicizing their work on a larger um, scale. But I think that Siona has made an incredibly unique contribution because she's an incredibly unique person. You know, her identity is unique and her style is unique, right? She's completely sui generis. We have, we have no other um, Indian American artists, no Indian American female artists, no other, you know, women of color who are Jews that are making art right now. So, there's no one to compare her to in that way. But of course, feminist sensibilities have been portrayed earlier in Jewish American art. Is that correct? We have, yes, we have feminist sensibilities in, so let's look at the modern era first, you know, the current time, you know, just, just a little bit younger, a little bit older than Siona. We have um, Helen Ilon, who recently died, who, you know, tiptoed into feminist issues she was more interested in how women had been um, treated in the Orthodox community. Then there, um, Ruth Weisberg, 
makes some interesting drawings, especially the scroll, which is an enormous piece of work in which she inserted, you know, women into mostly male roles that they hadn't been in before. So in that regard, she has predecessors as a feminist artist. And then even farther back, there are Jewish Americans who began the feminist art movement, but they didn't paint Jewishly or Jewish topics. In other words, Judy Chicago and Miriam Shapiro began the feminist art project in the 70s. And it's interesting, they're both Jews and did it. And there's been some discussion that perhaps their parents and grandparents' uh, background of you know, so social um, openness and trying to fix the world, which is an aspect of tikkun olam that I know Siona is very much affected by, compelled Chicago and Shapiro to take on this large task at that particular moment of trying to create a female art, create a feminist art, and get attention to female artists who had mostly previously been ignored. Mm -hmm. And this is quite kind of interesting because um, I read Shapiro in the 1970s began to theorize her work, uh, which she largely called Femage which is a type of art that collaged materials like cloth, painting, fabric, uh, paint, and all of them were associated with women's activities in the home. So, Yona, did you think about uh, when you're choosing materials, uh, whether it's gouache, whether it's watercolors, whether it's acrylic, are you, um, are you choosing that for the context or do you largely choose it uh, for the project, or how do you choose, in other words, how do you choose your materials or your medium of art even? Um, I think to answer the question largely, I choose my, I chose my materials that became a habit or I just grew, grew to love them. Um, I was, a, I mean, I started really thinking about my identity and what I really want to say in my art around the time when I had my, my baby, now she's 25, but, you know, um, and so I was staying home because of the little baby in the first couple of years, especially. And then I started going out more and exhibiting and doing artist residencies. But um, in those years, I really thought deeply, but then uh, two reasons. I thought of some paint medium that doesn't require too much prep so that I can paint while the baby is sleeping, so to speak. And, this, and secondly, I was introduced to gouache a lot more in theater set design school. Um, and I realized that gouache is, is, is there, it's ready-made. I don't have to mix the paint like, you know, traditionally in Indian miniature painting or something like that. When I went to Jaipur to study with the teacher, he spent like hours, he and his wife spent hours like preparing the paint and crushing it and mixing it. And, and gouache was these vibrant colors that where the, you know, where the pigment is more than the, than the binder. In watercolor, the binder is less or just is, is less than, than, than what it is in gouache. And the pigment is, uh, I mean, uh, the, the binder is more and the pigment is sort of, or equal, but in gouache, the pigment level is very much high. So the, so the vibrancy of the paint, and I could use it like watercolor or I could use it opaque. 
Uh, I didn't like acrylic too much because I didn't like the plastic quality in it. But now new kinds of acrylic by Golden, this company has come up, which has, it's called fluid acrylics and um, matte acrylics. So that doesn't have that kind of plasticky quality that acrylic paint has, which I didn't care for too much. So uh, the gouache got the, got the effect of these, uh, you know, of illuminated manuscripts or of being able to layer paints. I layer my paints you know, by using some medium in them. So that creates the rich color. That creates the gem-like quality in the color. So realizing all of that and the fact that I wanted to paint whenever I got the chance because of having a small kid, gotten me, it got me involved in using more gouache and using more, you know, user-friendly paint, so to speak. But at the same time, they were, uh, good quality, like I use the best gouache, which I think is Holbein or sometimes Winsor Newton, but Holbein is, you know, I feel the, the best quality. So I take care to use those kinds of really high quality paints that are archival and uh, using, first I started using paper, then I started using uh, a th very thick quality archival mat boards because it was stiffer. And then I mounted those on wooden panels, or sometimes I just use wood panels that I, that I treat uh, with gessos and then I paint on the wood panels. Um, I sometimes use canvases, but I prefer smooth surfaces. So I prefer to use something smooth like paper or wood panel. Mm -hmm. Gives you a little idea. Um, Samantha, is um, of these various painters who did portray various life contexts from the women's perspective or the women life and context. How do you, how do you place Yona's work amongst them? And if you could also throw a light on the uh, evolving nature of the 70s feminist art movements. I know you mentioned names like uh, uh, Miriam Shapiro, Audrey Flax, Ruth Weisberg. Um, so how do you see the art evolving in the American scene? Well, you brought up Audrey Flack, who I haven't quite mentioned yet, but there's um, a really interesting parallel between Flack's work and Siona's work, because Flack, she was working as a photorealist in the 1970s, and she still works to this day, and she's almost 90. She's a tremendous artist. And what interested her at that moment <clears throat> was prettiness. So she was interested in bringing feminine things into a very masculine style. Photorealism was, she was the only female photorealist. So the pho male photorealist painted buildings and cars and motorcycles. And Flack brought in jewelry and makeup. And she did a beautiful painting of Marilyn Monroe with pearls around her and flowers. And Audrey is interested in pretty things. And Siona is interested in painting beautifully and painting pretty and painting interesting objects that don't typically appear in male art, right? Typical male art. And this is, I am playing on some stereotypes, but they ring true in this partic these particular cases. But <clears throat> the evolution of the feminist art movement is interesting in that Judy Chicago, she, she was, she made the largest work of feminist art, the most prominent that most people, if they're going to know any work of feminist art, they're going to know Chicago's The Dinner Party. 
which took many years to make. It was finished in 1979. It's huge. And it's actually at the Brooklyn Museum. There's a special room that was built for it. So that project was a dinner party in which women featured. They, were, they sat around a large table. And, and this is um, visually sat around. There were place settings. They were made out of typically women's, you know, in quotes, objects like ceramic, like the kind of art that women had the opportunity to make versus the kind of art that Siona has the opportunity to make. She can, she can go to school, she can learn to paint, she can do life drawing if she chose to, whereas women artists didn't have that opportunity prior to the modern era. And Judy Chicago wanted to, and Miriam Shapiro, you know, bring to the fore women's art. And the dinner party surely did that because of its vast scale. Um, the women that sit around the table are, you know, again, these are visual, this is visually are interesting because it begins with, you know, the primor primordial goddess. And then the last setting is Georgia O'Keeffe, who was still alive. She was the only living um, sitter at this particular table. And then the one biblical figure from the Hebrew Bible was Judith. So that's the beginning. And, it, you know, it's slowly, you know, the, the point too was to point out that women are not shown in museums as much as men are. And in fact, that's been a um, comment that's been circulating around museums currently. This is still an issue in 2020 and 2021 that women aren't given the same amount of press in museums, not as much art is hung. And in fact, Audrey, one of Audrey Flack's works of art was pulled out of storage and is now hanging. Um, in a museum in New York City. So that's good. And it hadn't been out in years. So Siona has these opportunities that her predecessors have provided for her. But as she indicated, she still has the familial responsibilities that also cause problems for women, art, women artists over the ages. She picked a certain media because she had to work quickly because her daughter needed care. And that's been a discussion when it comes to female artists. You know, the idea, there was a great article by Linda Nochlin, the pioneering article. The title is, Why Have There Been No Great Women Artists? And it was tongue in cheek. And in, within the article, she says things like, well, they couldn't go to art school. They had family responsibilities. And that's, you know, that's a problem across the board, female artists or just in general, women who have careers or are trying to have careers, they have those other responsibilities. You're listening to The Outsider Narrative, a podcast that features conversations on cultures, migrations, identities, and politics. This week, I'm in conversation with Professor Samantha Baskind and artist Siona Benjamin. Talking about the various uh, possibilities of a depiction of women through, through the Jewish lens, um, obviously Judaism's matriarchs come to mind, uh, but interestingly, Siona chose to paint Lilith. Siona, why did you choose to paint Lilith? I think uh, Lilith I found was very interesting. She was, I, I discovered her much later. They, they don't teach you that in 
synagogue or in Hebrew school or, you know, whatever. They're like in Adam and Eve and then, you know, Cain and Abel. And then um, I was studying Midrash with several rabbis and I, I, and I also studied a little bit with some women rabbis, you know, like Rabbi Susan Tavi or, you know, also my Midrash teacher, Rabbi Burton Vesatsky at JTS. And then we, we started looking for, um, <laughs> what do you call it? Difficult women. <laughs> Uh, you know, women who uh, were were in the Torah that were not people were not comfortable to discuss about, and uh, even if you did, people were like, "Ooh, we don't talk about those characters," <laughs> because uh, you know they leave a bad impression, <laughs> so we just leave them out. Uh, Vashti in the in the story of of of, uh, of the Megillat Esther, she just appears for a few seconds, she doesn't obey the king and then she disappears, you know. Um, there are other other characters that are defined as Jewish women in the Torah or in the Talmud or in the Midrash, but their real identity is sort of hidden, like the fact that Zipporah was the wife of Moses and she was actually, um, I think she was, she was from Nubia, from North Africa. And she was uh, a North African woman. She was dark skinned. She was um, not what, you know, Western Jews think Jews should look like. And here she is one of the matriarchs. So sometimes her appearances change. And so I kind of delved deep into Ooh, what does she really look like? And I found uh, a lot of Midrash describing her. Similarly, Lilith was uh, the first wife of Adam in the mythology you know, and, and I found that she was darn interesting. Like, you know, she was the first ex-wife. She was, she asked a lot of difficult questions. She uh, wanted equality, you know, she's like the first feminist ever <laughs> in, in mythology. So um, I decided to study more about her than I found the alphabet of Ben Sira, which is a whole writing about the story of Lilith. And I studied a little bit of that with a couple of rabbis and I started discovering more and more layers of about her. But I also found, um, I wanted to mention something different. I wanted to talk about with uh, another female rabbi, I, I, I studied about black and white fire, black and white fire to tell you a little bit about it because I just feel like you need to explain it. It is in the Torah and it's and we and we read the Torah the same way as everybody reads it, but the black letters in the scroll are clearly defined and are finite. But yet there is endless room for creativity in in the interpretation of the in, in the text. This is represented by white spaces in between around the letters of the scroll. The black fire continue provides like a foundational structure, like, like it's real. And the white fire allows us to, to be more innovative, allows that creative space to adapt to new challenges, to discover new ways to understand ourselves. So it's like yin yang. It, it talks about good and bad. It could talk about positive, negative. So I started thinking, you know, this is already there in the, in the in the Torah, and so why are these so-called patriarchally patriarchally made negative characters left out? 
you know, um, they are just as relevant. So Lilith was that, you know, maybe white space in the black and white spaces. Very interesting that you mentioned about Lil Lilith being in the outsider in the black and white space. I note, and I quote Samantha on this, where she observes in your paintings that Lilith is ambiguous. And I will just read this line, which I really thought, you know, really speaking about your work, is that the ambiguous Lilith, unfairly cast as an outsider, allows Benjamin to grapple with world diversity and injustice. Uh, what's your response to that? Right, so um, it, it, she does, she does give me, so like, for example, um, I'm, again, I thought about like talking about an example. So like uh, in Finding Home number 88, one of the many Liliths that I've done, so Liliths, for example, I'm just giving you an example because it sort of will provide a picture for, so Lilith in this case spins a web, a, a big web, but she's caught in the web. She's raised up by angels and she's brought down by demons. So again, that yin yang, she's like dealing with being raised up and brought down. But she has a tefillin, which is a, which is a prayer symbol in, in Judaism, wrapped around her hand, which becomes spirals on her hand and her hand disappears, but there's like, it becomes like a black flame. So it, it's again, a black letter or a flame or, um, you know, is it just the flame from my mother's Shabbat lamp every Friday that is etched in my memory? So this tefillin becomes a lifeline in a way. And uh, she has a turban on her head, like my great, great grandfather. I have a picture of him that is also etched in my memory of him, like this long white beard. He looks like some, you know, prophet, you know, with this big turban on his head. He's wearing a three-piece suit with a chain in his pocket with the star of David hanging from that chain in his pocket. And he's got this turban and this large beard. So I feel turbaned too. I feel this oriental turban sits on my head because people place it on my head all the time. It's there, you know, whether I like it or not, it's there. People place it. They're like, oh yeah, she's different. <laughs> so, you know, Lilith gives me that opportunity to She's turbaned like me in her otherness, so to speak. And Lilith promises to rise again and again. And she promises to be persistent about, you know, telling or answering these difficult questions. So what drives feminist sensibilities in the other Jewish American artists? Can scripture convey feminist sensibilities? And if it does, of course, uh, what other artists in the in the Jew Jewish American uh, genre uh, reflected such art? Scripture can surely reflect feminist sensibilities. Siona shows us how it can by you know she's so interested in these biblical figures. She brings them to the moment. She puts them in modern day situations or connects them in, in some way with, in what is very much a protest art. Um, these are, you know, the women of the Bible, the women of the Hebrew Bible can surely tell us something about war and violence towards women and even domestic, you know, domestic violence. So she does that. Prior to her, the Bible has been used by other artists. For example, and this is, the, you know, I'm talking about the 60s and the 70s. Um, let me think. Nancy Spiro 
is one really good example. And she certainly used, she used Lilith. She actually had Lilith in a particular work. She's interested also in physical violence against women. She's interested, very interested in war, like her husband, Leon Golub, you know, protesting war. Then Audrey Flack occasionally would use biblical figures in her art, but, and Miriam Shapiro even did an Adam and Eve one. So there's little pockets of Jewish American artists along the way who use the Bible, but there's problematics there too. These are you know, 20th century artists and Jewish content and especially biblical content can exercise you from the canon. In other words, the Bible was passe at the second half of the 20th century, even the first half. That was, you know, that was the stuff of the Renaissance and the Baroque period. And the Bible made some people uncomfortable. You know, the, we're thinking this is abstract expressionism and post-painterly color field artists and pop art. So the Bible wasn't a popular matter at that particular time. But nonetheless, Jewish American artists and some American artists used the Bible. However, I would argue that there's a preponderance of Jewish American artists, both male and female, who gravitated towards the Bible over time. And one of them is actually another New Jersey artist. Sio and I don't know if you're familiar with George Siegel's sculptures. You know, his white wrapped, you know, sculptures that most often dealt with, you know, social loneliness, right, and isolation. But then out of the blue, he started making life-size biblical works with these white figures. He did an Adam and Eve, he did a Hagar, and a Abraham and Isaac, an Akidah. So the Bible does find its way into modern art, but especially Jewish American art. And Siona follows in that path in a moment where biblical art could and should be more accepted. I think that what Samantha just said is like a sequel to another whole discussion about um, how um, religion, I feel, is sort of given a bad name, always. Religion is like, ooh, it's not cool. Oh, I'm not religious and therefore I'm cool. Well, I'm not religious either. I mean, I don't even observe Shabbat in that way that my mother did anymore. I don't need to because I feel I find the spirituality in my work, you know? but I do have to carry the memory of the wonderful rituals that my family still continues to carry in Israel, especially some of them who immigrated there. But I think religion is given a bad name. I think people who are in the, you know, who, who uh, dictate what the canon is supposed to, is, is uh, what the canon is, is uh, supposed to, you know, carry forth or have, um, or is relevant in the canon, so to speak, you know, um, should realize that you can't conveniently leave out certain subject matter just because you don't deem it cool enough or you don't deem it relevant enough because you look down on it in some way. I think religion has been the basis of history, of making of mythology and so even though religion has caused war and violence in many, many situations, 
But I think mythology, which comes from religion, from many different religions, not just Judaism, I look at other religions too. It is, it is, it is the recycling of mythology is what makes life. Um, Joseph Campbell says it in his book, The Power of Myth. He says, you know, um, mythology is there in your life, in everybody's life, whether you're an artist or not. Why you choose a certain color sweater you buy in the store is based on your personal mythology of what you've been made to like from your background and your family and your, you know, what, you're, what you've been introduced to. So that is a form, form of mythology too. And people don't see that, that how it is there in their life and that mythology is what dictates, um, you know, who we are. It makes history and, and, and it will continue to make history. So I think that uh, it's really important for people to start thinking about opening up their horizons and understanding that it's really, instead of giving religion a bad name, that it can be used in a different terminology, like, oh, this is myth-making, or it is recycling of mythology that is so interesting, that stems, that comes from ancient mythology, which happens to come from diverse religions, which has been there and will always be, be there. So I think that is really important for people to start thinking about it and not making conclusions about certain you know, artists or things or movements. I think Jewish artists in that way who do, uh, who do, who do make, um, you know, say biblically themed or mythology themed subjects are um, not given that much attention because it is connected to the, I can say the R word, religion, <laughs> you know, and um, I think that should be that veil of, of, of misconception should be taken away.